Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hi, everyone, and welcome to today's episode of the Professional Book Nerds Podcast presented by Overdrive. This is Jill. Welcome to January. Welcome to 2022. Here we are. Um, today's episode is an interview I did with uh, Sochil Gonzalez about her new book, Olga Dies Dreaming. This is her debut, and it's phenomenal and is getting, like, all the things it's like getting talked about it's just we talk about this in the in the interview um but to have like your first book be this huge big thing and so she was so much fun to talk to she's just delightful and we talk about oh good dies dreaming we talk about um sort of the real life world events that happen in the book that um had an impact on our culture and our society at large. We talk about this huge book coming out as your first and already being like optioned for television. Uh, and yeah, so much fun, so much fun. So I'm very excited that this is our, our first interview of the new year. Um, if you want to get a hold of the podcast, you can go to our website, professionalbooknerds.com. We are on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at ProBookNerds. And you can email the podcast at professionalbooknerds at overdrive.com. Um, I think that's all I have for you today. If you listened to my very short episode on Thursday, you know that I have been sick. And so I'm recording this in advance and I'm still sick. Uh, <laughs> so... How about we not listen to my stick stop the self anymore and we go listen to that awesome interview I did with So Chill Gonzalez on the Professional Book Nerds podcast. So Chill, thank you so much for coming on the podcast to chat with me. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here and I'm excited to talk about Olga. Yeah. yeah. So can you start by giving our listeners a brief introduction to Olga, D- Olga Dies Dreaming? Yes. Okay. So Olga Dies Dreaming is a family saga set in Brooklyn, New York in 2017. Um, and it centers around a New Yorkian family, uh, mainly the sister Olga, um, who we meet as a 40-year-old woman. Um, and her, she's a wedding planner to the ultra-rich of Manhattan. And her brother is a U.S. congressman, Pareto Acevedo, it's her older brother. And we learn that they were abandoned as children by their mother um, and left to be raised by their grandmother. Um, their parents had been young lords, which was like a sort of like a Black Panther power, like a Latino power movement of this in the 70s. And um, their father ended up uh, falling into addiction, but their mother became radicalized after the movement ended and instead sort of left them to pursue um, like militant social justice causes. And 
uh, she kind of comes barreling back into their lives as uh, the as Maria Hurricane Maria descends upon Puerto Rico. And um, what really happens is that they they're seemingly successful adults despite this sort of childhood tragedy, but they've sort of just swept a lot of hurt feelings under the rug. And what the book is really about is what happens when we're forced to kind of, um, when the roosters, uh, the, the chickens come home to roost, so to speak, and um, how you can go quite a long time without dealing with stuff, but eventually we all have to sort of confront our our demons. Um, sure do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and I, I love the relationship between Olga and her brother. And as you said, you know, it, part of the book is they're both, they're older, they're trying to find themselves and be okay with, you know, admitting who their authentic selves are and sharing that with the world while still being burdened by these expectations of their mother, who they have not seen in decades. But it it really does showcase that that stuff still sticks with you. Oh no matter my gosh, what. completely. I think it's like a really interesting thing. Like, I don't even want to call them mother wounds, but mother ties, right? And, and one of the, like, I mean, thematically bigger things is sort of like, you know, um, they are, of Puerto Rican descent grew up in New York where there's like a very much uh, what I would call a diasporic culture like New Yorkian culture which is like a very specific mix of like New Yorkiness and um and you know like kind of like um in things that we pulled from the island that we retained like a, a generationally but they both basically grew up in Brooklyn right and this mm -hmm. idea that they have this attachment to this place from which they descended and they're not as familiar with is kind of an equally uh, a, a parallel to how they feel about their mother, where they have this attachment to this person that they've descended from, but don't quite know. Um, and it's uh, and it still has this sort of like looming impact on their lives. And I do think like, great, right, it's like a nature and nurture, like how do we become the way that we are and how yeah. much of it is like are we bred into that and how much of it are we conditioned into that? Right. Like, and, and right. it's interesting, right? Yeah. Right. And you know, you, it, it's interesting because, you know, the, we get to know their mom through these letters um, that are kind of interspersed throughout the book. Um, and I, I think you would use the word like looming and it, it is this like whole thing over their story and what is happening both in Puerto Rico at the time um, and everything going on. So what was the decision behind having those letters kind of interspersed throughout the book? Yeah. So, you know, um, I was inspired, I was inspired by this character, like in two, twofold. One was personal, like my, my mom and my dad met during the Brown Power Movement. And mm. I was raised by my grandparents, my maternal grandparents, because my mother um, became very active in the socialist worker party and like was sort of always like on the move, um, like doing stuff with them. And so there was this idea of like, what is it like to, I just thought that was kind of intriguing. Like, what's it like to have been the child of somebody dedicated to like a big cause. And then early on, I, you know, I was kind of just like trying to think about what the aspects of like Puerto Rican culture I wanted to, and history I wanted to hit on. And I was rereading the story of um, this man named Filiberto Ojeda Rios, who's in the book a little tiny bit, but he was a real person. And he like also was very um, concerned with like the independence of Puerto Rico and had some militant tactics towards it. But he left his kids and his family and lived in the mountains of Puerto Rico for 15 years and would just send the kids cassettes 
Like, and he had like a whole network of people involved in his movement and they would tell him what his family was up to. And he would just send them these like audio cassettes, like, like almost like letters, just like notes. Mm -hmm. And I thought to myself, what if a woman did that? Like, I just thought like, it was like a radical thing to think of. Like, what if if a woman did that? Like, it's like, you know, because it's like when you hear a dad doing it, it doesn't sound as audacious. It's like, oh, but he's still in touch with them. But like, when you hear a mother doing it, it's like, but you didn't talk to her. She didn't show up. Like, you know, like, and I just sort of thought this one-sided communication was really um, a fascinating conceit. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And so that was sort of where that came from um yeah that's sort of where that that idea came from that's interesting and something I hadn't necessarily considered is this idea of you know men when you know fathers I don't want to say like abandon their family versus when mothers do it but there is like a societal judgment that comes on the mother in a way it doesn't happen with the fathers but also in the inverse one of the things that I also think is so interesting and like and it plays out a tiny bit in the book and it was like something that um in the adaptation like you see a little bit more but it's also the inverse when a father leaves a family people are like I'm sorry your dad did that when like if somebody says like oh I don't talk to my mother like nobody's like what did she do like it's always like you don't talk to your mother like it's like there's this weird judgment like like that you must be the flawed person right instead of like you know like and so it's like oh I don't really talk to my mother it's like this feel of, of this you know I think I think one of the things that I um when I was in the middle of revising the book not writing it like but when I was revising it what was the hardest thing to do was to actually access like total truth. And I had a friend send me this Toni Morrison interview that she'd um, done about Beloved. And um, this it's great. I, the greatest part about getting your MFA at Iowa is that your friends randomly have these like, sure. just, like the appropriate <laughs> Toni Morrison quote for any writing dilemma. Like they just sent it to you. But anyway, it was like at their fingertips. Um, I, I, the quote was literally about how the purpose of a novel is to pressure somebody to confront their feelings of shame or unworthiness. And I had to like, oh, so what was definitely more present in the revision that I think is, is, in, is in this book is um, that there is, she's really burdened by her own feelings of, of shame. Yeah. And, and some of that is shame from her mother and some of that is shame about her mother and what it is, the idea of an identity of being abandoned, like a circumstance that you didn't create for yourself, but that you feel like somehow colors you um, and the way that people see you. And so, um, yeah, I think that that, like that idea about mothers is such a big one. I don't know. We're like, we're so linked whether we want to be or not. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> leave it at that. Oh. <laughs> I'll, come, I'll come back for the Mother's Day edition. It'll be great. No. <laughs> Fantastic. Let's do it. <laughs> um, so you mentioned that uh, the book is set in 2017. You talk about Hurricane Maria. Um, and it's it's interesting because there's this examination in the book between these ultra rich weddings that Olga is planning and then the economical struggles of Puerto Rico. Um, especially after the devastation of Hurricane Maria and Irma. And it, it speaks a lot to the, the classism and racism that is very prevalent in American society. Um, and so I was, I, I know part of it is probably from your own background, but can you talk a bit about your decision to make Olga a wedding planner for these families and the, the decision to set it during this particular time? Mm. 
Yeah, I mean, the decision to set it during this particular time almost came before I decided she was a wedding planner. Um, I, in fact, in the original, she's, she as a character started as something else. Like mm-hmm. it was like a bunch of tiny short stories that I realized was kind of about the same woman. And in the, the, that iteration, she worked at an auction house, like an art auction house. Okay. So that, like, you know, like she was still engaging with people of means, but like, it was like, I, I, you know, I was sort of, it was my first stabs at fiction because I'd started out working, not writing nonfiction. And I, I wanted to purposely not make it so autobiographical. And, um, but the, the Maria thing was the thing that kind of pulled it together in a funny way, because I was supposed to, when I was turning 40, I started writing when I turned 40, a month before I, my, my 40th birthday, my grandmother died and she's my last living grandparent and my three grandparents raised me. Um, I'd spend the summers with my paternal grandmother and I'd spend the winters living with my maternal grandparents. And um, and I was supposed to go to Puerto Rico the next month for my 40th birthday with my friends. And then mm-hmm. Irma, my birthday was smack between Irma and Maria. And so I already was very cognizant that there was very limited power on the island because of Irma, because my hotel told me not to come. Mm-hmm. And we, and so I, I had already been very cognizant about Promesa and a lot of the fiscal crisis that the island was under. And then it was kind of like watching, like, uh, it was like, it was insane to me because I was so clearly aware of how bad this hurricane was going to be before it hit. And then everybody was like, who knew? Like, and I just couldn't get over the lack of care that I was seeing. And it was a bad hurricane season because it was the same year as Harvey. So I'd watched the response on the mainland states and then to see this quite opposite. And I very much remember the beauty of getting older is like you remember so many things. I I had gotten married like right after um, Hurricane Katrina. So you have to start looking at these things and being like, okay, racism. Do you know, like, right. and, yeah. and, but, but also I think what was upsetting to me was that I, people didn't understand like the fiscal, the, the, people didn't understand the, the, the actually like pol- colonial handcuffs on this island, like that they already were paying tariffs, like they pay tariffs to get vegetables. Like, yeah. like the entire diet on the island is, di- is is been basically dictated by the Jones Act. And so that like many of these things were waived and it's like, you know, it just was sort of terrible to see. And I think beyond people watching it on the news and then that fading as a story, I felt that, it, I felt this desire to, explain the way that this hurts a soul of a person that's tied to this place um and I was like well then maybe fiction is the right way to do that and then and then the wedding planning you know and then I was sort of like you know what like everybody understands weddings like I I, (laughs) like like, everybody like that's the simple thing for people to grasp like okay you plan weddings and then I had had that experience I, I I planned weddings professionally for like 12 years I owned the business for like 15 and um and I, I sort of semi-retired before I actually fully bat out. But <laughs> but um, I worked with very, very extremely wealthy people. And um, and it's just a really great way to talk about class. And yeah. I think just generally speaking, that has been a defining um, experience. For one of the defining experiences of my life has been, you know, the gift of education was an amazing thing because it enabled me to like change my economic circumstances. But but you realize that a lot of people with in positions of power and with some economic autonomy don't have never lived that other experience. And so you can very easily, it's hard, it's hard to remember something you didn't don't understand. And so I think um, a privilege that I have is that I 
remember both experiences. And even as a business owner, I mean, I weathered a recession and I ate a lot of canned soup during that time. So, you know, like, it's like, I think just that is a part of the American experience is economic need and fret. And I think um, I was interested, very deeply interested in writing about that aspect of living here, right? And 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 yeah. chasing and what materialism kind of is and means and does like to 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 us and how that focuses our time and stuff. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And now we'll take a quick break for a word from this week's sponsor. Has this ever happened to you? You need to see a doctor like me right now, sounding like this. But you search and you find one that looks good. You wait on hold to book an appointment. You rearrange your whole schedule. Maybe you have to take off work. And when you finally go in, you find out that doctor doesn't even take your insurance. And it's that time of year when insurance is changing. And it's just, it can be a whole thing. But there is a solution. Just download the free ZocDoc app. It's just the easiest way to find a great doctor and instantly book an appointment. With ZocDoc, you can search for local doctors who take your insurance, read verified patient reviews, and book an appointment in person or video chat. Never wait on hold with a receptionist again. Whether you need a primary care physician, dentist, dermatologist, psychiatrist, eye doctor, or other specialist, ZocDoc has you covered. ZocDoc makes healthcare easy. Now is the time to prioritize your health. Go to ZocDoc.com slash ProBookNerds and download the ZocDoc app to sign up for free and book a top-rated doctor. Many are available as soon as today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash ProBookNerds. Yeah, no, because it's so interesting because you, you know, as someone on the outside, you you see it happen all the time um, where people have these incredibly lavish weddings and you're just like, they're just like throwing money away. Like, what are they doing? And then you have something, you know, and it's something that they have very deliberately done that as a choice they've made to like spend that money and people judge them for it. And then you look at something like the devastation that happened to Puerto Rico and people are like, well, they're just like in a way, like almost that they've done this to themselves, that they don't have the economical foundation. And you're like, that, that's not how that works. <laughs> that's exactly <laughs> like, right. It's not how that works at all. And it's like, it's like, so I think it's so funny. I, I mean, I, I should say this, like, I remember my grandmother when I was like very into wedding, my grandparents like lived through the recession. My grandmother was an orphan. Like it was like, like 10 kids living in one Brooklyn apartment. Like, you know, like, like literally being raised by like a 16 year old. Like it was like, like, it's like, like Dickensian. And mm-hmm. she was like, they're spending that much on a wedding. Like she's like, like what, they could buy a house with that money. And it's like, they have so many houses. Like they have so yeah. many, houses. like, I think on the other side, people don't realize, like, it's like when you see somebody spent a million dollars on a wedding, it's because they've got so many other millions. Like, right. <laughs> right? like it's like, but I do think it's, it, it is, um, there is an interesting, it's kind of like the mother thing. It's like, yes. we blame people about poverty. Like it's like, yes. there's a judgment around, um, a, 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 around poverty. And, and the funny part is 
it's not even that there's a, a the minimum wage in Puerto Rico is is lower than it is on the mainland. Like it's like like there's so many like the the level of atrocities actually like I I it would it's too um I really on the one hand I had things I wanted to discuss in this book. On the other hand, it was very important to me that it not come across as polemic. Um, I you know it's like so if it starts to crowd the story or your awareness of the the, the, the mm. story, I, I was like I'm not going to get into it's not a policy paper right like right, and I think right. um, <laughs> you know and I think that I, I had to slightly tone I don't even want to say tone it down but like you know there's more if this is intriguing to people and I think it should be I think if we are in a time where we care about social justice and voting rights. And what does democracy mean? And the equity of the meaning of being an American, I think everyone should care about Puerto Rico because yes. quite literally, if you happen to arbitrarily, we could acquire a piece of territory and decide like Texas is now suddenly the part of this and it's like, but now you can't vote for president. Like it's like, you know, like we should uh, like this, the arbitrariness of it should disturb us all like that like you're born in one place and now you're not quite a citizen like yeah. versus being born in another place and that should really um that should fret we should feel fret about that fraught about that like we really should yeah yeah and i and i think <laughs> no yes uh, yes <laughs> uh, but i think you know that that speaks to what you had said earlier about you know like using fiction as a way to open people's eyes to all of this in a way that maybe feels more accessible than a nonfiction book or a policy paper. And, um, you know, people will read this and probably see things or consider things they hadn't before within the context of everything surrounding Puerto Rico. I hope so. I mean, I think one of my fights, so I got, I didn't get my, I got my MFA at like 42. Okay. So like the reason I talk about it, I just like, when I say that, cause I was like, I just finished, like I literally just got out of school. But so I, I when I talk about school, it's a fresh memory, but one of mm-hmm. the fights I would, debates we would have in at, at getting my MFA was that I was like, we're artists. We're supposed to have things to talk. Like we're making art. Like I think too often, like novelists, um, novel writing story writing gets separated from other forms of art and um the best of art should be should have like some something to say do you know what I mean mm-hmm. like and, and and I think about um you know just really amazing films like if you think about like like just what Philadelphia did for like yeah. mm-hmm. like AIDS stigmatization stigmatization like it's like like there have been there are these wonderful angels in America on Broadway like like you know like there are these amazing do the right thing and like race relations and like like I think there's these amazing moments um where art has had a seismic uh, ability to make people think about something in a little bit of a different way and so I just sort of felt like this was an ability like I, I hope an occasion to use art to try to talk about this. But that said, I that that being said, I would say that I'm really happy that it's finding this wider audience. But I totally wrote it for like a Puerto Rican girl in Brooklyn. Oh sure, like, I mean, <laughs> no, I get that part. Yeah, yeah, like it's like you know, like I think, um, like I definitely like I had like a reader in mind and a, a very specific person, and I was like, I was like, I'm writing this for my girlfriend Heather Ortiz. No, like, like, like but, um, I just think like that, like I think it's really to just. I don't know. It can. It's it's cool to think that like 
it's not just um, stringing words together. It's like, is it just provocative? You know, like, and I think part of it is like, I will, you know, a lot of the characters have different takes on lots of things as people do. Like, you know, Brieto and Olga feel very differently about their mother, just even like, and their, and their father. Like, and I yeah. think that's like it. And I think it's, we as a, as humans just have a myriad of opinions and we're seeing, oh my God, are we not seeing that now? Like in this day and age? But like, I think it's to just say like, there's not really one, there's many, many, many views of what, what is happening in Puerto Rico and what should happen. And I think I wanted the, it to encompass as, like as many of those diverse sort of perspectives as it could. Sure. And, you know, to that end, you, you tell the story through different point of views. Like it's not just Olga, um, not all of whom the point of views are particularly likable. And so, <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> So, you know, like where, where did that decision come from to structure the book that way versus just having it told through Olga's point of view? Yeah. Um, you know, I think I, it's funny. It's like part of it was because I, I had been, I reread a bunch of books before mm -hmm. I started reading Olga and I reread one book that I was like, I, I, I think this I love it. It's one of my favorite books. And I don't want to say, but I don't want to say what it is and then say what I think you should have done differently. But like, Got it. I, I remembered thinking that it involved two characters of two different races. And I remember thinking this would have been a better book had he given the other character a POV because then that gives them more agency. And I mm. think because Olga and her brother were both going through such in, like intense things, I wanted to give them their own space for those experiences to be valid and not have it be observed like trauma that the other person is like taking in. And I thought it was important to get their mother's POV. She's the only, because they're letters, she's the only first person POV. Yeah. And then, and then ultimately I, I didn't actually have a lot of debate, but I remember in, uh, cause I workshop part of the book in Iowa, there being debate about whether or not Dick, her lover should have a POV. And I never debated that because my feeling was that it's in many ways, Olga is symbolic of Puerto Rico and she is like sort of like semi-controlled by forces beyond her control until the end, like, and she takes some agency over her life. And I thought it was very important that there is like, um, you know, somebody with power that has like some say in the lives of these characters that, that you know, is somewhat detached from the amount of power that they have. And like, and, and I think that in, in a lot of ways, that's kind of representative of how Puerto Rico sits in this yeah. situation and um and that that character happens to be a white guy isn't coincidental yeah. like you know but right, like, I, right. <laughs> like, I, I think it was just I think it's it's important because um you know I, I mean if you, I think there's a point where she says like the, the Blanca Blanca's I, I actually I don't want to say she's my favorite character I, but what I like about Blanca she's not but what I like about Blanca is that she's a little bit wrong and a little bit right always Mm -hmm. And she has this one thing where she's like, this was not a game that you were like, you weren't, the game is rigged for you to lose kind of. And I think yeah. what I, I liked about the dick thing is that sometimes you don't even know the stuff that's going on. Do you know what I mean? Like that. Is, and, and I think that we were seeing that it was more made more transparent. I think in the last like um, in political administration, because we would catch wind of like meetings that were happening where like these mm -hmm. crazy decisions were getting made. And you're like, Oh, okay. Like, I remember like, I was already like very well into the book and I was like, this is starting to make this not seem like very hard to believe. Like, like I was like, <laughs> 
I was like, this is actually feels very like total, like I was like, suddenly this doesn't feel like fantastical. Like it feels completely within the realm of things. Cause we were sort of seeing power yeah. and power being manipulated in a very transparent way. And so I think that that was part of why I wanted to make sure to keep um, that POV in there. And, and I also think like, you know, I think one of the things this might be too long of an answer, but you'll edit it if it is. But like one of the things that I've had the experience of being like a, a very white passable Latina and I, I'm very often invited into rooms of mm. to be on boards, to sit in on committees. And I hear what people really say because they forget I'm there. I think I'm invited in because that people, you know, it's like, I think that's, and that was something that I definitely had happened for Olga. And I um, like where somebody had asked me in a discussion like uh, a discussion about why did I make her brother the darker skin one and her the lighter skin one and I could have made it like I could have said something by the reverse but I was like but what I've seen reflected in reality is that when there are calls to pat like of groups of power and there are Latinos there it's always the lightest skinned whitest looking Latinos that get invited into those spaces and I thought felt that it felt true to what I know as a as a, a Latina woman that it she's ends up at the private school and he ends up at the state school yeah. and like he ends up in public life where the a forum where he can excel and be who he is and she ends up in this uh, sort of like strange nebulous like you know kind of like luxury service world and I um I just thought that that was like I think that that was cognizant and I, I kind of wanted to give in a funny way insight like everything like you know all of the the dick stuff is stuff that I've more or less heard other people say just tied together you know it's like threaded yeah. together and when they forget that you're looking or they don't realize that it's going to be offensive and um and I think that that is another form of um you know sort of like performance that that, that she has to, to do and he has to do they're both kind of conditioned to be performers in a lot yeah. of ways yeah, yeah. well um speaking of performers that's actually a terrible transition but we're gonna go with it so <laughs> I feel like we have to talk about the tv show because as you know, a writer as a debut writer, nonetheless, what is it like to have your book optioned and in production before like it's even published? <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, okay. What I can say is that <laughs> I, what I can say is that because it was my first book, I don't know a different version of the experience. Fair. So, so, but I, what it's done is that it's made me love the book more because the book is like, pure if that mm -hmm. makes sense I don't actually I want to say like what, what happened was again good things about doing things when you get older like originally I just read something about Elena Ferrante because I guess she has uh, one of her books is being uh, made by yes Maggie Gyllenhaal and she was like I that's Maggie Gyllenhaal's project I don't want to have anything to do with it and like she'd written like an op-ed about it and I was like yeah not me like I was like I want to micromanage the crap out of this like no <laughs> I, I what I I felt is that I knew that I was this is a very specific world like I'm, I'm like holding the book now I was like people can't yeah. see I'm holding the book um <laughs> it's a very specific world it's a world that I know very few people know because I don't encounter many people that know South South Brooklyn such a specific culture New York in such a specific culture like that I was like yeah no like who's gonna do it like I was like, like and and I'm part Mexican 
American. And like, I, you know, they sent me like three screenwriters that were Mexican American. And I was again, different universe, different universe, not the same, not, not the same at all. And I was like, yeah, no, I was like, if they don't want me to be involved then I don't want to work on it with them. Like I was like, I, I, what I did know was that I had some power, a tiny, Mm -hmm. tiny bit of power because the book hadn't even come out yet. And so I was like, well, we can just wait and see how it does. And if it does really well, people still want it, you know, like, and so, um, I was like, so let's just hold out and then we'll just do it on the terms that feel good. And then I ended up ironically partnering with a Mexican American director, um, who's amazing. Alfonso Gomez de Hon, that he's like the most brilliant person. He had done me an early dying girl. Yes. And, um, and the book just spoke to him and we had all the same favorite books. Like we like got on a phone call and I was like, I was like, we have to do something about this together. And then when Hulu called, I was like, well, I want to do it with you if you let me do it with Alfonso. And they already loved him. So mm-hmm. it kind of worked out well. What was great, actually, was that I, it sounds chaotic, but I think it was really good. I was working on the, I while I was waiting to start revisions I with, with my editor, Megan Lynch at Flatiron, I was working on what they call a series Bible for the show, which is like where you break down who all the characters are and what's going to happen in each episode and having to explain to strangers who these characters are made me really go back in. And especially with Prieto, like I, the greatest revisions from the version that sold to the version that people will get to read was in how his real estate is, how much real estate he has and in his, story and his interiority and that journey and I am so I was it was really edifying for me to like have to break down somebody that I kind of gut instinctly knew and like have to like describe this person to strangers that were like yeah I don't have (laughs) typical very LA I don't have the time to read this book could you like right you know like it's so um so I found it really helpful I think what I would say is that then once we moved into production I just sort of had to somewhat put my hands up and be like, this is now a collaborative project. Like, and like Olga that I hope people see, we'll find out next year, early next year, like about the series. But, you know, Olga is part my words, part Alfonso's vision, part Aubrey Plaza's like interpretation. And it's a collaboration. And then, and it was great. Like there'd be some weird lines, like she'd like riff. Like in like doing, and I was like, that's even better than what I could have written. Like, you know, like, you're like that's great. Like, that's yeah. so perfectly Olga. And this is, this is this person like now. And I, I imagine as it goes on their ownership of that, like, you know, Ramon Rodriguez plays, oh my God, plays, oh, uh, plays Prieto. He is like, like, I don't, I don't know. Like I can't now, like I now see, he's so embodies it. Like Laz Alonzo, um, we weren't, I, for some reason we didn't announce this, but like Laz Alonzo plays Reggie King. And it was like the most beautiful thing to like, it was, a, it was so beautiful because he's such an activist for Cuba and to hear him like, and he never gets to play. He always gets cast as just an African-American yeah, character. Yeah. And it was like, and it was so great for him to like, it was so great to have created this space for him to then be a play character so similar to who he actually how he identifies himself and that was just a really beautiful cool thing so I think I just started to see it as like like theater you know I mean which yeah. kind of is like very expensive expensive theater but um you know I think I was like the book lives as the book and that's its own art form and I think this is a different art form and so um and I've just been trying to have some 
fun with it and honestly like it's actually like the production aspect of it is a lot like planning weddings to be totally honest <laughs> nobody in, like like if you want to see people on a zoom like get like just depressed it's like tell them that you, like what they do for a living is a lot like wedding planning well actually what I said was <laughs> what I said was I was like honestly this is a lot less stressful than planning weddings because they were like are you so stressed out it's your first show nobody's in this position and I was like honestly it's a lot less stressful than planning weddings because nobody's going to personally sue me I was like I <laughs> yeah. I, I, like there's a thing in the book where she says like somebody got sued because they substituted like an, an Ecuadorian rose for an English rose that really happens that legit happens so like I would I say like you would show up on a set like imagine waking up you hope in a good year 30 Saturdays out of the year yeah. and you're like I hope I end this without getting sued. Like, <laughs> like that's a very stressful job. <laughs> For sure. For sure. Yeah. That is. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, having planned my own, I can't imagine trying to plan somebody else's. A weird yeah. sidebar about television. But anyway, <laughs> TV is less stressful than planning weddings. No, that's the headline. Like, it's like, um, fine. But- it's not as it, it's fun in a different way, but it's there's nothing more satisfying for me. I think because I was a write a reader for you, I, and I always say like I was a commuter reader. So it's like I would give up. I'm like if I like on Goodreads, like I would probably I'm not very good about tracking things on Goodreads, but I would have a DTO D, did not finish. What is it DNF like list? Yeah, because I'm like I'm not schlepping this book back and forth to the city. <laughs> not good like and I'd move on like it's like so I really was like I want to write a readable book like but that same feeling when you get so lost in an awesome novel like where you're like I don't want it to end and I I'm I'm in this place and I'm in a strange place is the same feeling that I have when I'm writing and that is like there's nothing like it and so like and writing prose in particular and so like I definitely um yeah, of course, like, I, I definitely I enjoyed the process, but like I was sort of like, I want to go back and be writing another book in isolation in Iowa in my pajamas for five oh. days. I'm like, <laughs> I, novelists, I think, love the pandemic. Like, you know, it's terrible to say, like, it's like, it's really like, I just don't have to make excuses to not go out anymore. That's sort of nice. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. For sure. <laughs> Well, I, I've had so much fun talking to you. I just have one question left, which is what do you hope readers take away from Olga dies dreaming? Oh, but it's such a good question. I hope that readers take away that we're resilient. Like we humans are resilient and are, it's never too late to like, it's never too late to solve old wounds or to find love or to love yourself. And I hope that but that's the ultimate takeaway. Yeah. 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 It's really, I think about resilience. So love it. So chill. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. This is a lot of fun. Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode on overdrive.com and our library friends can purchase these titles in marketplace. Professional Book Nerds is proud to be an Evergreen Podcast signature program. To learn about other Evergreen Podcasts, visit evergreenpodcasts.com. Our podcast is produced, recorded, and edited by Jill Grunenwald and presented by Overdrive. To learn more, visit professionalbooknerds.com. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. 
Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.